Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour, where we tackle the political urubus from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, Feminist Coffee Hour on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at femcoffeepod, and you can send us an email uh, at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And welcome to our episode about self-care in the age of Trump. We just wanted to check in with each other and with our audience. Um, it's been a while since we recorded something together. We still want to make this show. We still like this show. Um, but just sometimes life gets in the way, all good things. Mm-hmm. But we've been busy. Mm-hmm. So we're recording this on Sunday, August 27th, 2017. I'm not sure when this will go up. Probably sometime in late September, early October. So we hope that you are enjoying the fall, wherever you are. Karen, what have you been up to lately? I've alluded to this, I think, in some of our earlier episodes that I've had a life change uh, happening, and uh, I've gotten into a PhD program, which I'm starting tomorrow, or I'm starting classes tomorrow. I've done a few orientations, a lot of orientations. I'm really excited about that. Also, recently, in between leaving my job, which I will never be able to leave fully, and uh, starting school, I traveled to Berlin uh, in Vienna and I came back to the States halfway through the week before the white nationalists marched in Charlottesville. And so relevant to our topic on (laughs) self-care, it was really distressing to see the social acceptability of views that previously I feel like I'd only seen expressed anonymously online or in dog whistle in public. And it was such a strange argument for me to hear that the reason was that taking down Confederate statues would lead to forgetting the Civil War or somehow erasing our kind of classical white supremacy in the U.S. in the form of the enslavement of black people and the war that was fought largely over the secession of the southern states in their idea of protection of what they felt was their right to own slaves. And so one of the things that I found really interesting in contrast of going to Berlin uh, and Vienna, both cities of which were under Nazi rule, was looking at the way that they honor the atrocities of their history uh, and comparing that to the kind of stated impetus for this march to protect Confederate history. And so one of the things that was really fascinating to me about that is in Berlin and Vienna, they have um, commemorative things called stumbling stones, which are pieces of brass square shaped uh, in the pavement in front of buildings that were stolen from Jewish residents during Nazi rule. And these stones cover the name of the people who were expelled from their homes, um, the dates that they were taken from their homes, and the dates of their death at the hands of the Nazi government. And in my mind, the monuments to the atrocities, I mean, that really captures, I mean, it was incredibly emotional to see these for me in a way that I found that I hadn't expected. And seeing those monuments in contrast with, I mean, I, th- I think the analogy would be 
a statue of Hitler or Goebbels, you know? There was none of that, yet somehow I felt very connected to the Nazi history of the country all these years out. And so, Elizabeth, you had mentioned the ways that people are kind of planning monuments to kind of our our very violent, brutal, white supremacist culture in the U.S., Yes. Last year I read uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and he is um, an activist with an organization called the Equal Justice Initiative, which works on giving uh, legal representation to people who are on death row. Most of his clients are black um, people who are on death row who cannot afford a lawyer. And another project that the Equal Justice Initiative is working on is something called the Memorial to Peace and Justice. And the main memorial is going to be in Montgomery, Alabama, and it's expected to open in 2018. And the purpose of the monument is to honor the 4,000 racial terror lynchings of black men, women, and children between 1877 and 1950 in the United States. Those are the ones that EJI was able to document. I know you were saying, how do they know how many there were? These are the ones they were able to document. And something interesting about this monument is that they want to have sister monuments in other cities to get individual cities and localities to uh, acknowledge that this happened in those places. So you can learn more at eji.org. And uh, the Equal Justice Initiative is an organization that's doing a a lot of work to help people that don't have adequate legal representation and also to get rid of the death penalty in the United States. They were the organization that represented the case in the Supreme Court to get rid of the death penalty for people who were tried and convicted for crimes committed as minors, and they were able to get rid of the death penalty for for those people in the United States. I think that was one of their most recent legal victories. Brian Stevenson has several short TED Talks um, online. If you don't have time for the book, which I think that you should read, you can watch many videos of different talks he's given about his work and about his organization. And so in terms of self-care, I think what we've both been kind of talking about in this conversation is how we kind of process our history and our present in context and what actions can we take for remembrance and also moving forward, it sounds like, with the Equal Justice Project. So I think our history is continuous, and so I think that this kind of legacy is, is really beautiful to create a monument and to have a, an organization that's working towards kind of present-day racial terror or working to end present-day racial terror also working on this project to memorialize historical racial terror. I think that's a really fantastic way that maybe some of our listeners can get involved if they feel helpless. Which kind of brings me to something that we talked about during the Women's March episode. One thing that's been really useful for me was showing up at marches, showing up at counter-protests. It might be wise to separate those two things. Showing up at protest marches versus showing up as counter-protest are two really different sets of things One is a lot safer than the other. Exactly. Um, And so I think it's really smart to separate them. Um, I think there's a real therapeutic value in marching. Again, you meet people. It kind of helps you answer the question, what can I do? You'll meet people who are doing things, who have suggestions, what can I do? And you get to see the numbers of people there, and you get to see 
what our country would look like if the people who cared the way you care showed up and we're all in a similar space together. And I think it's, it's not just kind of your civic duty, but also incredibly therapeutic, whereas maybe counter-protests might be cathartic? <laughs> uh, and also kind of bear witness to what it is we're fighting against. Right. Like I said, there are two different levels of, I think, risk associated with those. If you're the kind of person who can't get arrested for whatever reason, if you're a caregiver or if you, you know, have uh, a background where you don't, you don't need that on your record, or if you have the kind of job where you'd get fired if you got arrested at a protest, you know, a permitted march is a lot safer most of the time than a counter-protest. Just putting that out there. Although, I mean, we do have the right to free assembly in the U.S., and I do kind of want to put that out there, that a permanent march is no more legitimate than an unpermitted protest. I agree with that. I wish that it was that way in reality, but the police don't seem to agree with you, Karen. It's true. And I'm also not a legal analyst. So something that I've been doing recently, so... You know, some of you might know, I, I have a son, he's about to turn one year old. So I think, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, how am I going to be able to explain this stuff to him when he gets older? And a lot of people make fun of that. A lot of people say, oh, you don't have to talk to your kid about Trump because they're a kid. And obviously a one year old can't grasp any of this stuff. But I think that it is important to talk to your child about current events. You know, there's a meme going on recently about what was the first big news story that you remember. And I think for me, it was the 1988 presidential election. I remember watching the Democratic National Convention with my parents. I don't know if it was the night that Michael Dukakis spoke or if it was the night that, um, that Geraldine Ferraro spoke. And I know that they, they watched the debates also. And, you know, I asked them who they going to vote for because my first grade teacher covered it in class and, you know, I saw it on TV with them. So, I mean, kids are aware of that kind of stuff. And, um... When I was about 10 years old, I started marching the Labor Day Parade with my father. And I think that it was good for me. And I think it's obviously a privilege because there are some children by circumstance of where they live or who they are, that there's certain realities that they have to face much earlier than other children. And I don't think that pretending that political realities don't exist does anything to help kids once they get to be adults. I don't think you have to go... And scare your kids. I don't think anybody should go to their kids and, and, you know, make them think that, you know, Nazis are going to bang down their door tomorrow if they live in the United States. But I think that being realistic and answering their questions and giving them access to media for children about this stuff can only help in the long run. Because I think there's a lot of people who I know who are adults who have what I think of, I refer to it as ostrich syndrome. I know a lot of people who think... You know, well, I'm not racist, and the only people who are are hillbillies. And, you know, or I know that healthcare is a human right, so why is this even a political issue? And to me, that's so far removed from political realities or the, the facts as they exist or the way that our government works, the way that our politics works. I don't even know where to start when I hear someone say something like that. And to me, um, you know, they're like, well, you know, I know I'm a good person and I think most people are a good person. Let's stop talking about this. And um, I think something that you said to me, Karen, one time is like, can everybody please stop yelling is not a coherent political position. Right. <laughs> and that that's true. I'm not saying scare your kids. I'm not saying, you know, show them stuff that they're not ready for. 
but I think, you know, age appropriate information on, on history and current events is only going to help them in the long run. Yeah. And my understanding of like developmental psychological research for traumatic family events where small children, like the, the death of a family member, uh, small T trauma, that there are age appropriate explanations and that kids are very good at reading when their parents are distressed and it concerns them. And so being able to validate their read that their parents are distressed by saying like something along the lines of, I know mommy or daddy's been upset and I want to talk to you about why in an age appropriate way tends to be very good for children's understanding of major events uh, as opposed to leaving them completely in the dark. And I think sometimes this stuff that they're going to hear at school, like we talk about kids hearing about sex in the playground, but kids are going to hear about politics in the playground too. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was in elementary school during the first Gulf War, I had classmates who thought, I mean, you know, they were talking about how Saddam Hussein had Scud missiles that he could aim at Israel. And the kid misheard it on the news and he thought that Saddam Hussein had Scud missiles that could hit New York. And they were very upset and you know, they were talking to everybody on the playground about it. And, you know, children mishear things and misunderstand things. And if, if they can't talk about it at home, it's it's only going to frighten them. Yeah. And I've definitely also heard that in this election um, that people's kids have been scared about the wall rhetoric. Someone told me that their child was really concerned that there would be walls uh, in their elementary school as well, like that it would come to a local level instead of just a, a wall along the Mexican border, and that that was very scary for that child. I mean, that was, wasn't that a Hillary campaign ad? Yes, the kids are listening to everything Donald Trump says. And yeah. Do you want your kid listening to him for another, who knows how long, how many years, so? In perpetuity. One thing that I found really helpful, just kind of psychologically, after kind of really feeling pessimistic, seeing the kind of social acceptance of what I had thought were incredibly extreme white supremacist values. One of the things that helped was kind of revisiting uh, Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. The book is about kind of staying hopeful in the dark of uncertainty. It was originally um, associated with the start of the Iraq war and is unfortunately still relevant today. But I think my takeaway from it, which I think is idiosyncratic, is really like the political organizing work that you do may not show the fruits today or tomorrow or a year from now, but that doesn't mean that your work will not change the status quo, that your work will not move things forward, and that great victories are won over decades of steadfast work. and that even in times of darkness, you can work towards the world you want to see. I think that we're seeing that now. I think something that, that's given me hope is in the weeks since Charlottesville, we've had two um, examples in, in Boston and in San Francisco where the counter-protesters outnumbered the uh, Nazi protesters by thousands. I think there was something like 40,000 counter-protesters in Boston to about 100 neo-Nazis. Right. And it was a similar ratio in San Francisco. And Boston and San Francisco are both cities of under a million people. So having 40,000 people show up, that, that's a lot of people. I had no idea that San Francisco was so small. It's something like seven or eight hundred thousand, but it's not. That's under a million, though. 
New York is big people. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like my borough has many, many times more than a million. Yep. I think that 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 did make me feel good. And I think that, you know, a lot of those marches were able to be organized quickly because people had organized satellite marches for the Women's March and for other, you know, big marches that have gone on, you know, local chapters of Black Lives Matter, local chapters of the Women's March and, and, and so on. It's a good thing that those networks are in place. I know that in New York City, a lot of times, um, sometimes if you spontaneous counter protests generally happen in Union Square mm-hmm. after something happens, just if you don't know where it is, if you go to Union Square, that's that's where it's going to be. And sometimes Grand Army Plaza in Brooklyn. Yeah. So I think that that's good that, that people are showing up. But I think it's important that people stay vigilant. You know, this week we've had the resignations of Steve Bannon and Seb Gorka, which to me were generally, genuinely surprising. I didn't think that they were going to officially leave the administration. But I don't really know if anything's going to change. Do you think anything's going to change because they're not officially in the administration anymore? Or... It's uncertain to me. Uh, I refuse to be optimistic about it or cheerful about it. Um, I think it's better than them staying, but by how much? My relief at their leaving their official capacities, I think, really drives home my disgust in them being in those positions in the first place because their views are really abhorrent, and I think that their political motivations are antithetical to the ethos of the United States. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least the stated ethos or my idealistic belief right. yeah. about the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's funny, like, as I say this, because I think that one thing that's really occurred in the wake of um, the Charlottesville neo-Nazi march is my awareness, my like expanded awareness and self-education around the explicit white supremacist culture of the United States and like that these views, the way my family would describe them would be like anti-American values. But I think that a lot of the discussion around this has really made me examine that these are kind of explicitly American values in a certain way and made me, I think, aware on a much deeper level. I think that I was aware on a more deep level of just being a woman on the internet interested in politics. I think what's coming out is is the is almost like a paradox because we have explicit values in, you know, the the pledge of allegiance to the Statue of Liberty or the, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and those are what we say out loud. And then the implicit values are how things actually play out in terms of what people actually believe and how our institutions actually serve or fail to serve various groups of people. I think that that analysis might go to have its own episode in the future. <laughs> I think that's way more than we right. can. Right, uh, and and I think it's very today. idealistic. And I think people have said for a long time, you know, if you know, there's there's like a Superman graphic going around, and he's like, if you hear anybody saying anything racist, tell them they're being un-American. I think that's a, that's an idealistic thing to say, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to say because I think it's a good goal. You have to do more than just say it. There's more to it under there. I agree. So I've been just um, a fan of Lindsay Ellis, who is a film critic on YouTube, and she recently put out a video about the ethics of um, satirizing Nazis, specifically regarding the Mel Brooks movie and play The Producers. Mm-hmm. And she was just kind of sick of seeing people using The Producers as an excuse to make anti-Semitic jokes. And she explains how completely 
wrong that idea is that you can use him as an excuse to say anything you want and what he actually did and did say about the limits of comedy and what he actually meant to to express with the producers and she compares it with other works of media that critique Nazis going back earlier to uh, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator and then you know going forward to American History X and Inglorious Bastards and comparing and contrasting you know what works and what doesn't work in terms of getting certain messages across I would recommend everyone watch any of her videos but that one specifically I think it's extremely relevant in the wake of Charlottesville yeah, and so we'll include a link to that in the show notes. It sounded really good when you described it to me, and I kind of yeah. want to watch it now. So no, it's really good. I'm excited for it. So is there anything not political that you want to recommend to people if they need uh, if they need a break? Uh, some like go-to self-care for me. Take a hot shower, go for a walk, snuggle my cat, talk to my partner, talk to my dear friends, talk to Elizabeth. <laughs> who is included in my dear friends and basically if somebody posts a protest picture about a protest i didn't know about well i guess this one's political sorry but uh instead of being like ah why didn't i hear about it um reaching out to them and and asking like saying i'm really proud to see this photo i'm really interested in going to any marches you go to let me know if you hear any and yeah talking to people about how i feel powerless talking to people about how I feel, you know, kind of like a David and Goliath situation before the outcome. <laughs> but uh, where I'm feeling small and I, I feel like, what can I do? Who am I to stop anything? Definitely reminding myself that, you know, in the moment I'm fine um, and I need to work towards the liberation of my people and towards the liberation of people whose marginalizations intersect with mine uh, and beyond. You know, when I'm feeling lazy, I really think about who can show up to a march and who can't. Again, I'm back into the political realm, sorry, but I do think that it is important to say, like, it is important for white people to march with Black Lives Matter. It is important for white people to march against neo-Nazis because the neo-Nazis are less likely to shoot you and get away with it. So uh, keeping in mind that my privilege protects me and therefore it's my duty to go helps motivate me. So maybe this is less on the self-care and more on the motivational side. It's like what Rebecca Lynn said, you have to do it. You just have to. You just have to. <laughs> yeah, I'm very inspired by those words. You just have to do me, it. Me too. It's almost two years ago and I'm still like hearing her in my head. You have to do it and that's it. Yeah. How about you? What are you doing? My recommendations are perhaps more materialistic. I have a pedometer app on my phone um, and I try to get my 10,000 steps in. And when it's nice out, I was able to do it in June and I'm almost doing it in August. July was just too hot out. But just getting outside, getting some fresh air, going for a walk with my husband and our baby. It's, it's just nice to be out and about in our neighborhood and, you know, we're meeting other people in our neighborhood. I never noticed before because I had more time to exercise in the gym. But I never noticed how many of my neighbors are out and about walking and on the playgrounds and, and running and jogging and all that. And um, you can go out and it's a good way to meet people. So go outside if you can. Another thing that I've discovered recently, self-care, is you can get ebooks from the library, which is amazing. And I'm reading... A lot more books now that I can get ebooks on my phone from the library, and I don't have to spend exorbitant amounts of money on books. 
which yes. is a bad I habit of I also recommend this for textbooks. Yeah. Check your library before you buy. And then I guess just two quick media recommendations. Kesha's new album, Rainbow. Oh my god, amazing. Yes, and The Defenders on that. Netflix, which is not the best show I've ever seen. I don't think it's as good as Jessica Jones or Luke Cage, um, those series on their own, but I think it's good and I think it's a lot of fun and it, I can kind of not think about real life when I'm watching that show. Yes, oh my god. Can I just say I watched a compilation of people hearing Kesha's high note and praying for the first time. And there was just, like, it was so joyful. And I have to say, like, I cried when I first watched that video. I was very emotional about it. Um, it's really amazing to see somebody come through hardship and come out the other side um, and be so vulnerable in their performance. I thought that was incredible. I think it's great. So um, some podcast recommendations... Um, if you want to think more about racial justice in America, Karen has two and I have one. Yeah. So I think that we should definitely add the caveat that neither Elizabeth nor I is black. And I think that that's a really important distinction to make in processing this. Um, and so we can really speak to our experience, um, and our compassion for our fellows, but we both kind of seek out and to understand the experience of people who are having kind of firsthand experience with racial injustice. And I think in terms of self-care, a podcast that I would recommend is A Different Perspective with Dr. Amber Thornton. And she is a black psychologist. She's a black woman who has focused on issues specifically as they relate to the experience of being black in dealing with self-care and dealing with mental health. And so I would absolutely recommend that. And then just for conversations on the, the racial divide, two podcasts that I listened to about that are uh, NPR's Code Switch, which I think probably doesn't need our recommendation. It's a very popular podcast. Um, and I also listened to probably another one that doesn't need a promotion, but um, I think is really excellent. Still Processing, which is put out by the New York Times. They're both Black-run podcasts that I think are having really great uh, conversations around race in America. Yeah, my recommendation, um, if you're going to listen to a podcast about race in America, would be, um, from a Black perspective, specifically would be This Week in Blackness by Elon James White. I haven't listened to every episode. I listened to a few, and I think it's very good. That's been one that I've been meaning to listen to for so long. I'm really into Imani Gandhi, and I know that she is a co-host on that. And some news about this podcast. We're going to continue at our irregular clip, mm-hmm. <laughs> much to the dismay of several people who are like, why don't you publish regularly? We're, we've, we've tried. We're going to continue to try. Yeah. <laughs> That's our promise. <laughs> um, we will continue to try. We aim, we aim to try from a movie I don't know what it is but anyway <laughs> if you want to support our podcast we have hired a professional editor to edit our podcasts and it just helps us get them out faster and it frees up time for Karen to study which she should be doing now instead of editing our podcast um, so if you want to help out with those costs you can um, join our Patreon there's a link to it in the show and if you don't have any money Give us a review on iTunes because that's free and that will help people find the show. 
You can also send us a tweet or an email. Let us know what you think. Give us any questions or comments you have about this episode or past episodes and any suggestions you have for upcoming episodes. We um, have no intention of stopping, even if our publication of this show is sporadic. We have a whole spreadsheet of ideas that we haven't gotten to yet. A lot. And um, I don't want to say what they are because I don't know what order they're going to come out. But we're excited and we have (laughs) a lot of plans for cool stuff in the works. I don't want to spoil it either. Sometimes on the the sidebar of our um, website, I'll put upcoming episodes, but that's only after they've been recorded. So, spoiler. Or after the interview's been booked. So you can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie. You can find me at uh, Karen. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening, and we're really looking forward to hearing from you, especially if you disagree. Uh, No, I also especially like praise. Give that to us, too. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, thoughtful criticism is welcome. Yes. Political Flavored's Feminist Coffee Hour podcast theme song is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth. You can listen to her music at soundcloud.com slash Bridget-Ellsworth. And you can listen to her other songs there as well. And if you like what you hear, you can give her a like or even a follow.